Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, God's word says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we do make that even our prayer. Would you make your glory known through this church, through your Son, throughout all generations? Lord, even now, would you use this to stir in us a greater love for you, that we would be filled with your Spirit so that we might be more like your Son? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, Paul is encouraging us in these first eight verses that we should cry out to God that the Spirit may empower us to be like Christ. As I was thinking about this passage this last week and thinking about prayer, it made me think of how it's often similar to exercise. First, everyone realizes the necessity and benefit of both. I don't know about you, but I've never had someone come up to me and say, Pastor Jeremy, could you hold me accountable? I'm just praying too much. Rather, they say, I need help. And we feel the way in our exercise or our prayers. We know we need to do more, but that often leads to the second similarity, and that is that there's often a lot of guilt over our lack of exercise or our lack of prayers. And this then often leads us to feeling frustrated. And we resolve many times, okay, this is it. Tomorrow I'm waking up, four in the morning. I'm going to pray for two hours. And it maybe lasts for a morning or two. Our resolutions don't lead to ongoing change. And so then that leads to our third similarity, frustration. That people are just frustrated with their prayer life. And so we often turn to fads or gimmicks. These secret tips over time, though, reveal themselves just to be empty promises. So what can we do to grow in our prayers? What should we even be praying for? Well, Paul shows us it's not more resolve that we need. It's not some secret tip that will improve our prayers. It's rather coming to know God for who he is as Father. And seeing the importance of the inner man will drive us to God-honoring prayers. And so we see this laid out in three sections this morning. If you have bulletin, you can see this in the back. In the first two verses, 14 and 15, praying to the Father. Then in verse 16, strengthening by the Spirit. And then beginning of verse 17, indwelling of the Son. So first, praying to the Father. And Paul now continues his second prayer for them. I say continues because if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, it begins, for this reason. And then Paul expanded on the fact that God called him to be the apostle of the Gentiles. That was a side discussion. Now he comes back to his prayer for them that began in 3.1 is now picked up again in verse 14. Paul says, He bows his knees, which is interesting since Jews normally stood up to pray. Like how both men in Jesus' parable of the 
Pharisee and the tax collector going into the temple to pray, and they stood. And in the Bible, we read of other positions people had. Some sat, some bowed, some prayed in the midst of their work, some prayed with lifted hands. And the Bible has all these different ways or forms or postures in prayer because there's no mandated or especially potent posture for prayer. Yet though our body posture does not determine the success of our prayers, that doesn't mean our posture is unimportant. You know, it's not essential for you to wash your hands before you eat your food, but it is important. It's not essential for you to have your hands on the steering wheel. If you're really flexible, you could get a foot up there and kind of hold it. But it's important, and you should consider your posture. And our posture in life shows things. You know, when someone is desperate for something, they really want something from someone, what do they do? They get down on their knees and they beg. It shows a desire of utmost importance that they have and that this is a heartfelt request. Likewise, when we bow our knees literally before God, it can be a good indicator of our submission to Him and recognition that He alone can bring the answer. It's to say not only with our lips, but the rest of our body that we're submitting to God. And so whether you bow in prayer now or wait one day, we will all bow in prayer. We'll all cry out that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And yet, we often feel so unsure of our prayers that people turn to gimmicks. Some of the adults may remember about two decades ago when the prayer of Jabez became quite popular. Or about a decade ago, there was a growing enthusiasm about praying circles. What was that? Well, people were taught to draw circles, literally, around the things they want, or even to walk in circles around the things they're sure the Lord ought to grant them. In either case, they're to pray around those things, and in that way, claim them for the Lord. Well, these were Christians trying to learn successful ways to pray. Yet our prayers are not answered due to a certain posture or some secret formula. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he did not say, position your body in this way or repeat this mantra. And approaches like this, though well-intentioned, actually question God's character. Imagine talking to a dad who told you, well, I have some gifts to give my children today, but they have not said, dad, would you please, please give me a gift today? Or, you know, if they just walk circles in this part of the room, I'd give them the gifts. Like, what? If you want to give them gifts, why don't you just give them the gifts? Why do you have these things? And then if you found out, well, actually, I haven't even told them these things. It's a secret. You're like, what kind of father are you that has these secrets from your children when they ask you for things before you give them? God's not like that. We go to him to prayer, standing, sitting, kneeling, However, and cry out, and our success is not dependent on us. Any, any reason God hears us is because of His Son, and because He is now our Father. And that's really what Paul says next. He says in verse 14 that He bows His knees to the Father. What we read earlier, Jesus teaching His disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. And then in that same sermon, Jesus expanded on this in Matthew 7, 9 through 11, where he said, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, 
we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Thus, our confidence in prayer stems not because we have some secret. It's rather to whom we are praying. That's what gives us confidence. God is our good Father. So we know that if we ask Him for something good, He will not in turn give us something bad. He is better than any earthly father and wants to be good and kind to His children. Well, Paul expands on the idea of God's fatherhood by making a play on words in verse 15. For it is from the father, potter, like potter familius, the father of the family, it's from the potter that every single family, and the Greek word there is patria, so from the potter, patria. From the father comes all the families in heaven and on earth. We all come from God, the creator, and in that sense, we can say that God is the father of mankind. However, we should be clear that while that is generically true, we saw in Ephesians 2 that due to our sin, we are now children of wrath. Or Jesus even told the Pharisees, you are sons of the devil. So yes, we have this general fatherhood of God, but we have to realize that only through Christ can we be adopted and know God as our loving, saving Father. And I believe that knowing this will help us with the challenge of prayer. Now that might seem an odd phrase, the challenge of prayer. Yet if we're honest, prayer is hard work. I recently heard that Charles Simeon, the famous 18th century English pastor, said it's easier to prepare five hours to give a sermon to my people than to pray for them for 30 minutes. And we may know similar experiences. You have something going on in your life, and it's easy to spend hours searching and researching on the internet, and then you go to pray, and after about 30 seconds, you're like, uh, okay, I think I'm done here. We can give hours to these things, and yet so little time to prayer. Now let me be clear. Our prayers are not successful because of their length. It's not as though God has a timer, and once you reach some certain mark, your prayers become for effective. But rather, it's that in our lack of praying, we show where we really think help will come from. And if we know God as Father, then we'll know He cares for us more than anyone else in this world does. You know, He doesn't hear your prayers and go, well, nice you finally came back. Haven't been here a while, have you? He doesn't make us feel guilty. He is the father of the prodigal son. Who? What does the father do? He's looking out and waiting. And when he sees the son, he runs to him. So rather than the guilt we often feel over our prayers, just come to the father now. He wants to hear from you. He wants to know your burdens and your requests. And so, do you bow your knees before the Father? Do you come into His warm embrace, knowing that His fatherly care means that whether your circumstances are pleasurable or painful, He orchestrates them for our good? So Paul here cries out to God the Father that the Spirit may empower them to be like Christ. And we're going to focus on that middle part next, that the Spirit may empower. Verse 16, strengthening by the Spirit. It says in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power 
through his spirit in your inner being. Now we're there's so many wonderful aspects of that phrase, so let's look at them one at a time. First, according to the riches of his glory. You know, the riches of God's glory is the fountain from which all God's blessings flow. Paul says it like this in Philippians 4, 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now notice that Paul says according to the riches of God's glory and not out of the riches of God's glory. He uses the same phrase in Ephesians 1, 7. And there we listen to an illustration by the late Harry Ironside. You may remember that he said, look, it's important that it's according to God's riches. Imagine you have a pressing burden in your life and you have a friend who is a multi-millionaire. And so you go and you lay out your request and the need for money and how you really want their help. And they go, oh, I'd be glad to help. And they pull their wallet out and they open it up and they take a $10 bill and hand it to you. That's giving out of their riches. But it's not giving according to their riches. If they were to give according to their riches, they might reach in their pocket, take out their checkbook, sign three checks, and go, here you go. There's as much money in there as you need. You fill out the rest of it however you want. Then they're giving according to their riches, lavishly. And God gives us, not out of his riches, well, here's a little bit. I don't want to help that much. God gives us according to his riches. He has a bottomless fountain of goodness and glory that will never run dry. So cry out, as we'll see next week, because he's able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. You will never tap his fountain in such a way that it'll dry up. Well, out of that infinitely deep fountain, Paul asked for them to be strengthened with power. This is interesting. He made the same request in his first prayer in Ephesians 1, where he asked that God would illumine their hearts to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And the idea, the theme of power, is an important theme throughout Ephesians. And in fact, the words for power are used more in Ephesians than any other book in the New Testament. And remembering what was going on in Ephesus when Paul was there helps us know why. We're not going to turn there, but you could turn to Acts 19 and 20. And there you would read about how in Ephesus, God worked so powerfully through Paul that if even people touched his handkerchiefs, they were healed, that demons were cast out. Men in Ephesus thought this was needed, and so they tried invoking Jesus' name. And yet, when they tried to invoke Jesus' name to cast out a demon, the demon overpowered them. And they were forced out of the house naked. And then Acts 19.7 says, This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And that's not it. We then go on in Acts 19 and read about how believers came to Christ. They came in faith in Him, and some of them, they practiced magic arts, and they came and burned their books, and they totaled a value of 50,000 pieces of silver. They came and they confessed their sins publicly. Now we try to keep our skeletons, as we call them, in the closet. And yet what would lead these people to openly confess their sins? The power of Christ in them. What would lead them to give away their valuable, idolatrous possessions? Because of the power of Christ. 
Thus Acts 19.20 concluded, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Thus when Paul writes to these Ephesians about wanting them to know God's power, they know what he's talking about. They know the power that other people in the community are trying to say that they can have. And yet they have seen that it's only through Christ. So Paul prays here, according to the riches of God's glory, that they be strengthened with power through his spirit. Now oftentimes people use the same words, but they mean radically different things. Many people today love to talk of being spiritual. The popular culture is fine with some idea of something bigger and greater than us. People resonate with Obi-Wan, that there's the force. An energy field created by all living things that surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds the galaxy together. And then they go to church, and hey, the pastor talks about spirit, spiritual. Yeah, it's the same stuff. I, I believe in that thing. I believe in that. And yet though similar words, spirit and spiritual, are used, the Bible means something radically different than what the world means when they use those words. Consider Jesus' words in John 14, 15 through 17, which says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, just as is being prayed for here. You know, Jesus is clear that he gives his disciples another helper. This is a being that could be given or taken away, not a force that they tap into. And as you read through John's gospel, the pronouns for the spirit are always personal pronouns, not neuter pronouns, because the spirit is not an it, an impersonal force. Rather, the spirit is a he, a personal being. And we can look at many other verses that would show us that the Spirit of God has existed eternally, equal in essence and power with God the Father and God the Son. Therefore, when our friends talk about being spiritual, we need to be clear that we don't mean a mere power or animating force. We mean the third person of the Trinity. And as Jesus said, the Spirit has been sent to dwell in us and lead us. And notice that's what the Spirit is being called to do here, to be in us and to empower us in their inner being. And the Bible presents that we are more than just flesh and blood. We are body and soul and a soul that will last forever. And this inner being, the soul, the spirit, the heart, all these are phrases that the Bible uses to describe the inner man. And unlike some other religions... God doesn't value one over the other. So the physical, oh, that's bad. You need to be spiritual. Or the other way, oh, spiritual, that's bad. Physical is good. No, rather, God cares about us body and spirit. Thus, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us one day we'll be given resurrection bodies. When you die, you won't forever just be a disembodied spirit floating around, playing on a harp. No, God made us body and soul and both matter to him and should to us. And yet while they're both important, we must realize that our outer body decays, and that while this body will be replaced, or even more accurately, be given a resurrection body, our inner body will last forever. 
Thus, when comparing the training of the inner body and the outer body, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, so he's not denying saying, oh, physical is bad. He's saying, no, training your body, exercising is of some value, he adds, but godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Our soul, our inner man never dies, and in fact, it can grow and improve. Thus, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer body is wasting away, our inner body is being renewed day by day. So are you laboring to care for both your physical and spiritual body? Both are important. But we are being reminded here that only one lasts. We do put time and energy into caring for our physical body. Most of us have three separate times every day where we feed our body and we care about what we feed it with now there doesn't need to be an equality of time okay i just spent five minutes working out okay i gotta go read for five minutes oh i just ate for 10 minutes gotta pray for 10 minutes but is there an importance in your life to being fed spiritually do you have time carved out to read god's word and pray do you eat so to speak good sermons podcasts books or articles what are you doing to feed your inner man, your spiritual body? Or is caring for yourself spiritually, caring for your family spiritually, even on your radar of importance? You know, Paul's prayer for them here is for their spiritual growth. And so our prayers should have a similar focus. And that's not to exclude prayers for physical concerns. Those things matter. But to balance them. That we're not only concerned about the physical and not only concerned about the spiritual and yet, since Paul is crying out to God the Father that the Spirit may empower them, some may wonder, well, look, if the Spirit has to empower us, then do we do nothing? Well, no. Philippians 2, 12-13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All right, so we're supposed to do it. But then it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Notice that our working is predicated on God's Spirit working in us. The Spirit's empowerment does not mean we become passive. Our growth in godliness is not some mystical experience where one day you wake up and just, poof, you're more godly. Rather, God grows us through the renewing of our mind. And the Spirit works through us through means. Consider how the early church grew. We're told of it in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So they devoted themselves to hearing God's word taught. They devoted themselves to fellowship with other believers. They devoted themselves to communion and hospitality. And they had a devotion to prayer. And yet if you look at the normal life of a Christian in the U.S., it's a periodic attendance at a Sunday worship event, Every once in a while, a prayer at meals, prayers at important points of their life. They know basic Christian truths. They don't deny it's important. But there's no hunger or thirst to know God more. Their relationship with God is just a part. It's an aspect of their life, not the organizing and controlling center of their whole life. And Paul's prayers sharply contrast with that, saying, look, 
What most matters is the empowering of the Spirit in your life. And why? Why is this an important purpose? Well, he tells us lastly in verse 17, for the indwelling of the Son. Verse 17, the beginning says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And this really rounds out the Trinitarian theme of this passage. The prayer goes to God the Father, that God the Spirit may empower them, that God the Son may indwell them. And all of this is really predicated on two beliefs Paul has that are unstated assumptions. First, it's that Christ is alive. Christ can't dwell in their hearts by faith if his body is rotting in a Jerusalem tomb. He is alive, though. He rose from the dead. About 50 days later, he ascended into heaven. He now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Yet this is also predicated on the belief that God exists as a trinity. Thus God has for all eternity been one in essence, and yet three unique persons. Thus God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son are equally, eternally, and immutably God. God the Father is God, but He's not God the Son or God the Spirit. God the Spirit is God, but He is not God the Father or God the Son. God the Son is God, but He is not God the Father or God the Spirit. Your God is not like an actor. Some of y'all may remember when we first came, Keith was playing in the play Hook. And if you know Peter Pan well, you know that in the play, the same actor does Hook and the Father. Yet, that's one person doing two roles. And many people go, oh, well, that's what the Trinity is like. God the Father comes out on the scene, he acts, but then he goes back behind stage, and then he puts on new clothes, and then he comes out as God the Son, and then he goes back, he gets a new wardrobe change, he's got... No. They are unique. They are distinct. It's not one being just coming out on the stage in three different ways. Rather, for all eternity, God has existed as one being, in essence, though three unique persons. And the truth of God being Trinity may be normal. It might be weird to you. I don't know. But the next thing probably struck many of you as odd as you read it because it said that Paul's praying for Christians to be empowered by the Spirit so that Christ will dwell in them. But don't we all, believers, at the moment of conversion, receive the Spirit of Christ? Well, yes, we do. And we know that's true from many passages, but one is Romans 8 9, which says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of Christ. At the moment of conversion, everyone is gifted by God with the Holy Spirit. And since that is true, then, well, why is Paul then here praying for the Spirit to empower Christians for Christ to dwell in them? Well, Paul does this because he wants them and us to realize that Christ indwells us not as a sojourner, not as an Airbnb renter, not even a long-term renter. Christ comes to dwell in, reside in, and settle down in us. Paul actually makes this clear by the verb he uses for dwell. There's a similar verb for sojourning, like going and then moving on, but the verb Paul chose means to take up residence and control. Thus, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is telling people of the danger of being cleaned of a demon, being cleaned spiritually, but then not being filled with God's spirit. And he says in Luke eleven twenty four, the spirit then goes, 
if it has not been the person not been filled with God's spirit, the spirit then goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. The exact same word that Paul used, Jesus used, saying the spirits, the in this case, demonic spirits, come and take residence and control of this person. But we're to be empowered by the Spirit of God so that Christ comes in and takes control and reigns. And so Paul is praying that Christ would come to rule and reign in the life of the Christian. That the initial profession of faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord would not be like inviting a guest into your house. No, that your profession of faith was like signing over the deed of your house, your life, so that Christ now rules and reigns in it. And perhaps an illustration could make this clear. Imagine you did have an Airbnb and you had a renter and your situation was you would show up and greet them after a while and you show up and to your shock, there they are with rollers painting the walls. You go, what are you doing? They go, well, we don't like the colors in here so we're just changing it. What? You say, you can't do that. This isn't your place. You don't own it. The owner gets to decide how the walls are painted. Now imagine if you flip the scenario and you, they do own it and you go in and they're painting and you go, what are you doing? You go, well, I'm painting it. Well, why? Well, we own it. We get to decide what we want to happen in this house. The owner gets to call the shots. And thus, they can change wall colors. They can move a wall if they want to. They can decorate however they please. And to bring that to Paul's point here, to grow in Christ is to continually recognize and submit to his ownership of our house, our life. You know, we may like the shades on our walls of bitterness and holding grudges, but he says, no, that's not a good color. We're going to change that color to trust in God, forgiveness, and reconciliation. You might like to dedicate a room to the man cave where you get to go be by yourself. And he goes, nope. We're going to expand that. We're going to make that the community room where you can go and serve others. And you go, but what? I don't want that. And he gently replies, well, look, if I'm not the Lord of all, then I'm not Lord at all. Did you come to give me a short-term rental? Or did you give me ownership of the house? And notice his way of doing this. It's from the inside out because he wants ownership of the heart that Christ may dwell in your heart's now, this is another case where we use a word that our culture uses and can be confusing. When our culture says, follow your heart, they mean follow your emotions. And yet when the Bible talks about your heart, it's like earlier, inner man, your inner being, the control center of your life. Thus, Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty four, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or in Matthew fifteen nineteen, Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You know, it's out of the heart that these things come. Now, I'm not one for many illustrations, but I'm going to use this one. I have this nice little water bottle here. Now, if I take this water bottle and I shake it, water came out. Well, why did water come out of the water bottle? Now you know I'm really dumb because you're going, you just shook it, you moron. Well, what if this water bottle had been empty and I shook it? What would have come out? Hey, you got it. What a great illustration. What if there was coffee in it and I shook it? What would come out? There you go. 
What is inside, Jesus is saying, is what comes out. So when our lives are shaken, someone cuts you off in traffic, they take the last piece of apple fritter, that's a serious one, they do something, we get shooken, we get shaken, whatever happens, what comes out? Well, only what's already inside. And here he's saying, look, if Christ is dwelling in your heart, if he's going in and renovating each room, when that room gets shooken, what's going to come out? Christ. And better vocabulary, hopefully. Grammar. And the wonderful thing is that Christ is a patient renovator of our homes. He does demand to be Lord of all, but he does not work on all the rooms at once. Rather, step by step, He patiently changes room after room. This is why, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you may sometimes be like, I just am starting to realize I'm dealing with this sin, and I think I've been dealing this for years. I never even recognized it. How was I so immune to acting this way? Well, because the Spirit of God had not yet shown the light in that room to change the colors. And yet now he is, because God is a patient renovator. And he gets to that new room and he says, yeah, we haven't come here yet. We need to change the colors. This room is not fitting for me to dwell in. And as we've noted, even the Ephesians knew of the massive changes. They're giving up their magic practices. They're burning their books worth 50,000 and publicly confessing sin. Therefore, when we consider our prayers for ourselves and others, we should cry out to God that the Spirit may empower us to be like Christ. You know, that's Paul's point here this morning. But do you desire this? You know, have you given Christ the deed and the keys to your house, so to speak? Or do you just want a visitor? He comes, he gives you life insurance. When there's emergencies, yeah, come on in the house, but I don't really want to give you the deed. Well, friends, there's no better owner of your house than Christ. He knows better than you do what is best for your life. So repent of your sins. Trust him and entrust him to renovate as he sees fit. Or to use Paul's words, cry out to God that the Spirit may empower us to be like Christ. Some of you may remember that the conventional wisdom in the 1960s was that when you're playing athletics, you don't want to drink anything. If you do, you're going to get nausea, you're going to get cramps. Well, you can imagine in extreme environments like Texas and Florida that playing in the heat led to massive sweating. In fact, they would weigh players before and after the games, and sometimes they would lose 10 pounds, and some people lost up to 18 pounds of water weight in a game. Of course, losing all of this water weight, losing all of this is going to lead you to slow down and get sluggish. So one year, a coach at the University of Florida was concerned, and so he talked to a professor at the university, Robert Cade, and said, look, can you help us? So Cade and other professors started researching and they realized, well, look, the players aren't just losing water. They're also losing electrolytes, things that give them energy. So they concocted a drink. And the next year, the Florida Gators had this drink on the sideline. And it was amazing. That season, they became known as the second half team. As other teams wilted in the third and fourth quarters as they lost energy, the Gators kept going. And they won so many games. And as you obviously probably can recognize, that drink is Gatorade, now known throughout the world. And their motto is, is it in you? If you have Gatorade in you, at least the commercials, 
you'll have strength to get through the competition. Yes, you might get tired, you might get worn out, but drink the Gatorade and you'll be empowered to continue. But friends, there's a much greater competition in this world, even bigger than the game tonight. There's a competition for each and every soul in this world. You know, it's a winner-takes-all match. It's a battle of life and death. And the power to win this competition is not our willpower. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go fight. The power is not our religious activity. The power is not you being the best person you can be. The only power that will get you through is Christ. Is He in you? You know, He knew, not only could we not even win the competition, we were dead on the gym floor. We couldn't even get the competition going. And so He came and He lived perfectly in our place. He died for the sins that we should have been punished for. And he rose again victoriously, and now he has sent his spirit, which we're learning about this morning, to indwell us and empower so that day by day, we more and more become like Christ. And as the spirit of Christ fills you, you are empowered to live out the Christian life. So friends, is he in you? May we all cry out to God that the spirit would empower us to be like Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what a reminder. We often do get focused on important physical matters, our bodies, our finances, our houses. Lord, all things that are important to us and important to you. And yet, Lord, they can drown out the equally and more important at times spiritual that we will one day stand before you, that we have a soul that will last forever. So, Lord, would you give us the power through your Spirit to give the deed of our lives to your Son, knowing that he is a good Savior and Lord that we can entrust, who will lead us into green pastures, who will lead us beside still waters. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.